Today's show is brought to you by Lost Empire Herbs. You can get 15% off my favorite herbs for well-being and athletic performance by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. About three years ago, I got into herbalism after having Logan Christopher on the podcast, starting with the Phoenix formula, which literally had my body buzzing after I took it. Not in a jittery way, like coffee, but in a way where I really felt the herbs working with my body. Within two weeks, I was already noticeably stronger in the weight room. And ever since, I've made herbalism a regular part of my training regimen. I've totally ditched any sort of caffeine-laden pre-workout. And I really enjoy using supplements that come directly from the earth. Lost Empire Herbs was started by Logan Christopher and his two brothers to help bring back the lost empire of nature in our connection to it. And to bring the power of herbs to the general public. Again, if you want to see my favorite herbs, such as Shilijit, which has been mentioned by other podcast guests on this show, Phoenix Formula, and more, as well as get 15% off your purchase alongside a 365-day money-back guarantee, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. Welcome to a question and answer edition of the podcast. These are podcasts where on social media, I will put out a call for questions and then you all send me some awesome questions. It's always fun seeing what people have on their minds in terms of what's going on in the athletic performance world, and I enjoy giving you my best answers. Sometimes on these shows, I don't manage to get to every single question. This time, I did actually take some questions I missed last time, and I put them in at the end of this series, so hopefully I get to everything. And again, it's really fun doing these. I I really appreciate you who uh, sent me a question on social media. We'll start with Luca's question, which is on muscular versus fascial athletes. Uh, Luca asks, muscular versus fascial, is it really a thing to consider? And then differences in training intervention and how to identify. So this is a good question. It's something that I've talked about. I've probably talked about it on this podcast in this context, but I know in recent podcasts that I've been a guest on, I have been talking about this where I would talk about muscular versus fascial in this classification. And I'm not sure if that's a good classification because it sets up a polarity as if you're one or the other, as if you're using like all muscle to move or you're all bounce and all fascia. And in reality, we use it all. We, we imagine trying to use or to move without your muscular system or try to move without your fascial and elastic rebound abilities. You could say that athletes definitely may use one more than the other, but I'm not, if you had to just throw out a percentage, I'm not sure what that is. I, maybe you could say an elastic or fascial athlete uses 20% more elasticity and fascial fascial motion is the propulsion mechanism. It'd be, it would be really hard to really draw that out and probably could be confusing. And so since we use all systems, fascia, muscle, pressure, which I'll talk about, I think that a better classification may just be athletes who are a little bit more speed oriented and those who are a little bit more force oriented. In recent podcasts that I've done, especially exploring the work of Bill Hartman with several individuals who have really uh, expanded my brain to these concepts, and especially the concepts of pressure, is uh, looking at those power or force versus speed archetypes as the wide infrasternal angle versus narrow infrasternal ankle angle. <laughs> Sorry, sometimes I have the foot of my brain. Narrow infrasternal angle archetypes. And this is somewhat difficult to describe just via audio, but just think of the shape of someone's rib cage. So the angle that the rib cage creates directly below the sternum, a narrow infrasternal angle individual is a little bit more of an elastic or speed type individual. Although that that's, that's might not even be a good term in the sense of there are plenty of wide ISA 
infrastructural angle athletes who are very fast and very explosive. So it doesn't that doesn't mean that you're faster at all if you have a narrow infrastructural angle. It just means that there's a good chance that you would prefer faster ground contacts. You may have a better reactive strength index if you are a narrow infrastructural angle individual. It just means that you can bounce a little bit better. A wide infrastructural angle individual is someone who is going to have to the way their rib cage is structured with a little bit wider angle created under the sternum will tend to prefer, due to the nature of how pressure works in their body, will tend to prefer angles of deeper knee bend. And so that's important because it may be thought, I mean, we don't want to be stuck so far in one avenue or the other. We always need to introduce some sort of balancing force, but at the end of the day, your strength is your strength. And athletes ultimately need to train in respecting their strengths. And so I think it's more important than saying, uh, well, perhaps you're an elastic individual. We need to do more muscle work on you. Or you're a wide infrasternal angle. You're a power individual. And man, we really need to rip the, the plyometrics and, and get tons of plyos going because you're not, your RSI, your reactive strength isn't very good and your standing vertical is awesome. That can be difficult because you don't want to have athletes doing too much of things that they are not optimized. Their structure is not optimized to do. For example, if I gave a speed, uh, I shouldn't say, a, a, let's just say an elastic, narrow, infrasternal angle, someone who, who really bounces, a ton of bounding in a program, a high volume of bounding or plyometrics, they will be able to generally tolerate that much better than a, a power athlete, a wide ISA. And so we do want to give athletes some of their weakness, expose them to some of their weakness, but generally we want to respect their strengths. And so what I, what that's come to for me is largely the wide infrasternal angle athletes. They can tend to handle a little bit more barbell loading, bilateral barbell loading, heavier lifting, heavier weights than the narrow or the, I keep wanting to say speed, the narrow elastic. You just want to be careful with too much barbell loading with them. Because in my experience, they are a lot more sensitive to that in terms of their elastic abilities. And their elastic ability is their engine. So uh, we want to generally respect their strengths. And then the uh, wide infrasternal angle athlete as well, you can give them plyometrics. But generally speaking, I would just be cautious. I wouldn't do too much in any given session. I would look to use some biofeedback. So for example, uh, just a hamstring uh, toe, or a toe touch test or an arm over the head test to see if perhaps their system is going into a little bit of threat based off of the volume of the plyometrics they're doing. And I think that's just a good principle to have some sort of level of feedback throughout the workout anyways. But just testing that out to see if you're giving them a little bit too much. So generally train those athletes in their strengths. Don't give the wide ISA or the power athlete too much plyometric work. Don't give the narrow athlete too much barbell lifting, especially like deep compressive bilateral barbell lifting that might take them out of their strengths a little bit. You can give them some for sure, but again, it's just a spectrum and it's just knowing how much for each athlete is optimal or ideal. Someone asked a very similar question as well. Kairosis said, what approach would you take with a fast sprinter, a sub 10.5 who has weak top end speed and elastic, I'm assuming weak elastic capabilities? I put those two questions together because in many ways, they're, they're the same thing. What do you take when someone lacks this, when they're weak at this? Well, if you had that athlete who is that, like, let's say a 10.5, but weak elastic, weak top end speed, they're obviously probably a great accelerator, great at the 40, great at the 60, or whatever your 
early acceleration methods or means are, and they need to be better on the top end. Well, part of it is that, well, we would say, okay, well, let's just do way more bouncy stuff and plyometrics and maybe some, some hurdle hops, right? Or whatever you consider good for top end speed. But the problem is, is that athlete, the paradigm on how that athlete does those exercises is everything. So let's just take hurdle hops, for example. And we've talked about things like high hurdle hops and too many high hurdle hops can be a negative for several reasons, especially with the longer ground contact times. But we'll just, we'll just use this as an example is let's take that athlete who is poor at that elastic ability, that quick getting off the ground, utilizing the feet and the that connectedness from the feet upwards, you could say the fascial system, fully utilizing the fascial system. And so you could take that athlete and have them do hurdle hops. But then watch, it's not about the plyometric, it's about how they're doing the plyometric. It's the nature of the plyometric. That athlete who's very uh, squatted and compressive in nature will probably tend to do those plyometrics in a squatted and compressive nature. So in reality, they're oftentimes just going to be reinforcing the way their body manages pressure and optimizes with maximal force, which may be in a little bit more compressed, squatted type uh, posture. So how would I look to improve them then? Well, to me, it's always, I tend to think of it from the micro out. So what I mean by the micro out is let's go with not just like, let's say you have your 30 inch hurdles and you're jumping over them. To me, that's a macro. That's a bigger movement, longer ground contact times. And athletes can do that movement by still not being very good, like through their feet, for example. They might be collapsing their transverse arch and, and just having a really floppy ankle and still getting over those hurdles. So when we go a little bit more micro, so let's say just really small, quick bounce-based exercises, which Randy Huntington talked about doing, let's just say even like a rudiment hop series where you're doing, you have 20 yards, 30 yards, and you're doing very small bounces over that distance where the ground contact is very low and you're really feeling the bounce. I would do that. I would do a lot of footwork, foot arch work, heel tap type work, making sure the arches are formed and the athlete has a solid base from the foot upwards and the smaller nature of things, even just think jump roping, just think jump roping for 10 minutes. <laughs> There's a lot of good things that happen in that on that micro level. Now, jump roping for 10 minutes is only going to take you so far, but it's a basic micro level activity where because of the very short ground contact nature of things, the foot is going to be forced to react a little bit more quickly and it, you're not going to be able to revert to those lower power postures. So just a lot of like small, quick stuff. And that stuff too, I talked about stress. Like for example, maybe I have an athlete who's not necessarily well suited for plyometrics. They're a little better at strength-based measures and, act and uh, like squatting or deadlifting and things like that. And I have them or hex bar deadlifting, like a, a wide ISA, maybe a little better there versus a narrow, maybe just better at a deadlift based off their makeup. Anyways, let's say I had a power athlete, someone who's really strong. I have them do a bunch of hurdle hops or bounding and I have them do a toe touch. And there's a better chance that that wide infrasternal angle athlete, their, their toe touch may regress. They may, their nervous system may indicate a little bit of threat if I'm really loading them up elastically beyond what their system is ready for. So just with all that being said, I'm going to be biasing with smaller, quicker stuff that is not going to be as big of a threat to them, but still really lets them get their feet engaged. So that would be a big one. And then when we're looking at top end speed, I am a big believer in context-based activities. In my course, Elastic Essentials, I go into all sorts of context, or um, you would say, uh, not context, but constraint. There's the word I'm looking for, constraint-based sprinting activities where 
there's a constraint. Maybe it's a one-arm sprint. Maybe it's a low knee sprint. Maybe you're using some form of mini hurdle and some sort of coordination-based activity with the mini hurdle. You're giving the athlete a constraint that helps them self-organize, learn on their own, figure out the process. And so rather than telling that athlete who has poor top end speed to do all the the high knee run tall stuff, which again, based off their pressure, they're not well suited for. And to be honest, I wouldn't even tell a narrow ISA to run tall and have high knees. But that was standing, I would have that athlete, give, I would give them constraints to help them work in their own body and how their own body manages pressure and optimal upright sprinting technique. So I could go into that for a while. There's a lot of things that, that really go down that realm of sprint technique. Video is certainly helpful too. But we'll leave it at that. You work with their strengths, work with smaller motions versus bigger ones. And then with the top end speed, give them constraints to solve the problem rather than just sticking with this mechanical model that honestly, if there was with the high knee run tall, that would work better anyways for a narrow. So we're really putting athletes in a box when we're trying to say, well, your upright technique isn't good. So you need to do X, Y, Z. I much prefer giving athletes different constraints and having them feel how the different constraints impact their running and really solving it that way so they can work within their own strengths and their own structure to create their own optimal technique. And that's the way that we generally tend to learn naturally anyways, or it is the way we we learn naturally. So we should have an extension of that be when we have that elite athlete who's trying to run as fast as possible in track and field. Next question, Sven and coach Moses asked, my opinion on the strength speed curve and training implications. And I think because two people asked this, actually, I was thinking I saw Dan Bach was posting a little bit about the strength speed curve. And I I think, I don't know exactly, actually, Dan, what I didn't read all the uh, exact what you were writing out, but it made me think about, and I think, I think we would agree with this, but that like people get too into the minutia of all the little things you could do in the middle in the sense that what just happened to go and jump and sprint and do your sport and then just do some standard weightlifting with more forces on the other end. So go do your easy strength or one by 20 lifting and then go play your sport. It's pretty simple. Do you really have to do all these things in the middle? Do you have to do squat jumps and, you know, do the system that's the right squat jump and do the right velocity power load or, or things like that? And I'll say, I think my take of it is that my goal is to make training efficient. My goal is to not overly complicate something. And I think that the human body is smart and intelligent enough, and Christian Thibodeau got into this a little bit, that a good athlete, I should be able to just give them the main things they need and not have to get too complicated, meaning I should be able to give them a basic lifting and strength program and then basic speed or power work that could complement their sport in the direction that we're looking to go. And their body would figure it out by themselves. And we wouldn't need to get in this minutia of these jump squat ratios and ranges. Or even you could say the same thing with Olympic lifts on a level. Although I love using Olympic lifts. So my basic take is that if we don't have to get into minutia, then it's probably more efficient. And we can focus on other things by not going there. We can focus on mental training and visualization or intention or nutrition or sleep or or sports skill more sports skill reinforcement or maybe playing some games for a mental break there's a lot of other things that i think we can do when we don't bog ourselves down in minutia that maybe we don't need to go there like christian tudo said though some athletes might need more exposure to just different parts of that curve and i do agree with that helen hall was just on the podcast and was talking about heel striking and foot placement in running and how beneficial 
natural terrain is with that stuff. So for example, if I'm doing running and I want to be a better runner, we could take two runners. What's better? Having runner A sprint on flat, very, just very, uh, I guess you could call it unnatural, just super flat. There's nothing going on surfaces their whole life and they get coached on everything. So they never are challenged from a, a reactive perspective. They're just coached. Someone's saying do X, Y, Z in your sprinting or running versus someone who doesn't get any coaching, but has to deal with terrain changes all the time, uphills and downhills and little roots and ruts and slants. And their body learns on its own how to deal with all that stuff. And so Helen was saying that the hills going up or down can really help an athlete self-organize their foot strike without any extra coaching needed. And so I'll say that, and well, if you are a, a very poor striker, so if I'm running and I don't have a good foot strike and I need extra work, then I can use this in the middle stuff to help me. And I think that that could definitely be an option with athletes who just they maybe aren't making the gains that you want just doing a binary program and uh, meaning we just have strength on one side speed on the other okay maybe we, maybe we can get in some more advanced stuff stuff that involves uh some speed strength lifts and some you could say olympic li- i mean I, I do olympic lifts with a lot of athletes anyways regardless just because honestly just because i think it's fun <laughs> and i don't think there's anything wrong with that i think there's other potential benefits too but at the end of the day they're fun and they're explosive and i don't think you have to to classify them as this bridge because you can certainly get athletes everything they need to play in their sport without that bridge of Olympic lifts. But for uh, many athletes who maybe we want to see if we can make some more gains and we've done the basics, we've done the strength and they do speed and plyos, getting in the middle can be helpful. And so my favorite way of doing that is contrast circuits like French contrast. And in French contrast, you're doing a heavy lift and then you're doing a heavy or a more forceful plyo, and then you're doing a speed lift, so think jump squats or maybe an Olympic lift or something, and then you're doing a really quick plyo, like just quick contacts, like single leg line hops or assisted jumps or something like that. That's probably my favorite way. That or just basic contrast training, where maybe you contrast, you could contrast your squats with depth jumps, although that's still the poles a little bit. So I guess if we're talking about some of that just quicker stuff, one other way I like to do it, would be a descending set. So that reminds me of the old bigger, faster, stronger. This was their jump complex is you would do in order. So not, not in a contrast, but you would do two or three sets of a deadlift, two or three sets of a power clean. So now the weight's going down lighter. So that maybe the deadlift is with 300. Then the power clean is with 200. And then you're going to do two or three sets of a snatch with, let's just say 135. So the weight's going down, the force, the, the speed is going up. And I, I love that stuff. I feel so powerful the day or two after doing either French contrast or that descending type work. And it, so if I'm going to use this in the middle stuff, I want to do it in a circuit because I think the goal really is it's more motor learning than it is just this abstract saying power. We're just building power. We're going to do jump squats for power. But I think it's only as good as you can use it because a jump squat inherently, let's just say you have a bar on your back and 95 pounds and you're doing jump squats. It's not really i mean it's more specific to just do jumping in your sport by far because in a jump squat you're bilateral on two feet you're using the ankle probably much more as a class one lever or as a class one lever it's very like knee forward foot flat dominant type motions versus sport specific jumping so you're you're not being super specific at the ankle and you have a lot more compression through the spine than a typical body weight position jump it's just not the same thing So you're taking away a lot of specificity for just saying I'm training power 
And in reality, just jumping in your sport's pretty powerful. So, or, or cutting, you know, making a change of direction. All the things athletes do in sport have power to them when, they're, when power is called upon. So just saying we're training power, I don't think on its own, I personally don't think has a lot of value. I think it's way more valuable when we just say, look, this is motor learning. I'm, I'm exposing you to different constraints of lifting and speed and force, and I'm letting your nervous system learn through this, through this series. I think that's way better than just going in and saying, well, we're just going to do some jump squats for power or, or whatever it is else that you're doing. I will say that there are things like a Kaiser jumper like Randy Huntington uses and talks about. I think that's way more specific than having a bar on your back and the way that that will give you that the way that loads athletes up. So I think some exercises and ways people have created that are better than others or even like speed lifting. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't really do like 40 to 60 percent on the bar and just move it as fast as you can, because it's just not to me, that's not valuable by itself. That by itself, to me, does not really add quite as well to the system of um, let's just say jumping because that's an easy thing to do if i wanted to have an athlete jump with more power uh, and, and and really work that part of the curve that more speed end of things i would want to do it in a circuit i would want to have them do maybe a jump a regular jump up to a net or a rim do a depth jump then maybe do a quick like change of direction pro agility drill to get a different frame of power this is all body weight specific power and i would really prefer that as as power development because it's specific and you're learning and it's velocity and it's a ton of coordination versus the coordination to do a jump squat i just don't think by itself is really valuable or you could say a kettlebell jump or anything with weights and it just goes it goes back to to like just because something has weight that doesn't make it better (laughs) i'm always going to lean towards my body weight but it is fun with those complexes in the weight room that stuff is fun and and french contrast by the way i found to increase that increases explosive abilities so fast it's the thing where i just i'd look at it as a little bit of an ace card in many ways it's something that i will use towards maybe the the peaking if you would call it that phases or the phases where you really want to realize gains or if someone's stuck we'll selectively use it there but i try not to use it the whole year because i want to see what we can do without it and that's something that christian thibodeau's show on that topic really got my gears turning i've always been someone who wants to hold out on those those really high intensity training movements like depth jumps or overspeed or whatever till later in the year just because if you use it too much then your your effect from it kind of de- deteriorates over time so we want to save those we want to have them as ace cards and so i think about that stuff where we're really surfing the curve in a in a circuit like french contrast is kind of an ace card and then as i said i wouldn't just do like a jump squat or a speed squat just for the sake of saying we're training power by itself I would much more tend to utilize that in a circuit format. So hopefully that gives you my a good perspective on, on my frame of mind there. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. Simplyfaster.com is a fantastic coaching resource, not only on the level of their blog and all the information they put out, but also on the level of their online store. With the click of a button, you can see and purchase the technology that is utilized by so many of the world's great coaches. In simplyfaster.com's online store, you can have access to training technology such as blood flow restriction training, timing systems, including the free lap timing system, bar speed tracking devices, a variety of resistance training machines, such as the K-Box, and also Kaiser training units, which Kaiser training units being strongly recommended by sprint coach Randy Huntington, for example. You'll also get access to motorized sprint training units such as the 1080 Sprint, 
force plates, and much more. You can check that all out by heading to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Let's get back to the show. All right, next question. Kevin says, is it better to focus on the upswing or downswing of the arms when sprinting? Can you broadly explain how you think about the role of the arms in the sprinting action? And so, yeah, that's a great question. And it is, it's funny because I used to think it's very common in athletics to kind of disregard the arms and to saying, well, the legs are what's important. That's where force is coming up. The arms don't really contribute much. And then when you do see the arms being trained, a lot of times it's just people sitting with their butts on the ground and doing like the, the 90, 90 arm swing drill as fast as they can, which actually teaches you the wrong thing for the vast majority of the ways you use your arms, especially in sprinting. As you do longer sprints, the arm angle does sharpen, but there's still an opening and closing of the arm. You're never holding it fixed at 90 like it's in a cast, which is a very good way to deteriorate, let's just say, how your arms operate in in sprinting and running. And as I've learned from Adarian Barr, the role of the arms is a lot more important than we think it is. I just think because we are very buried, oftentimes in a very just force, force, force type paradigm, then we'll just disregard the arms. But the arms are important because they the hands control the feet in the air or the arms control the legs in the air and it all is routed through the spine and the spinal engine and there's this pulsing if uh, David Weck's been on the show talking about pulsers and these uh, shaking hand weights that help us to really tune into that vibrational pulsing action of our arms when we are running and people who run with the pulser in their hand will oftentimes run PRs or run faster with them in their hands than without them. The arms do pulse and move in a way that is beneficial, driven through that spinal engine into the legs. And so something I uh, learned from Adarian Barr is the idea of looking at the backside action of the arms. And it's funny because we usually talk about backside and frontside only in context of the legs. We, we say, all right, and usually it's just frontside, get more frontside, blah, blah, blah. And Really, I find it interesting to think about the arms in that context and look at the relationship of the arms to the legs. And so the backside or frontside action, I'll just say this. And so you could tell an athlete, for example, you could give them cues relating to what is happening with the hands or arms in front of their body. So for example, when my hand is coming forward in sprinting, coaches might give certain cues to what that hand is doing. Hopefully they're not saying, keep it straight in line with your shoulder and don't let it travel inside the shoulder at all because that's going to hurt athletes but what you may say or have athletes pay attention to is how is the hand twisting for example the hand might be a little bit supinated or the palm may be facing more towards your face at the end of that top swing because as that just to get into this i don't want to get too far into the details but as the arm is coming forward from the back in sprinting the leg on the same side or the ipsilateral side is going down to the ground. So the knee is up in front and it's coming down and the foot's coming down to the ground while the arm on the same side is coming forward from the back. So you have that ipsilateral control and the hand will mirror the foot. And so the hand as it's coming through is going to be supinating because that foot is supinating. There's a supination bias in that foot that's coming towards the ground. So that's why in that top swing of the hand in the sprint, you might see the hand coming, rotating up, maybe slightly towards the face a little bit as it's in that little bit of a supination mode. You wouldn't see, you sometimes see this, I would see it in like women's distance runners for some reason. I would see this a lot as kind of a swimmy type arm action where their palm might be forward, very forward action. Anyways, and then the 
standard action would be as that hand is dropping and it's coming back down, it's going to be pronating a little bit because it's fitting with pronation in the air of the leg. So there's a subtle twisting. If you just have your hand fixed straight the whole time and it doesn't rotate at all, that's going to lock you out of some rotation, some subtle and important rotation in the foot as the leg is circling around. So all this being said, you could talk about the front side action and how there's that that hand is pronating on the way down. At the same time, I've heard uh, coaches tell athletes, hammer the elbow back to 90 degrees in the backswing. And they usually say that because they want it to help lift the knee in the front. I'll just say this with any coaching and any position, as I really steer away from coaching athletes into positions, I try not to tell them, we'll get in this position because when we do that, we, we lose reactivity. We lose reactivity, or the feeling especially, of reactivity between ourselves and the ground and what our joints are doing and how our joints are storing and releasing energy. In sprinting or any athletic movement, there's a constant storage and release of energy. And by really just getting to a position, we kind of freeze ourselves out of that cycle for a moment. And so that being said, I don't tend to say one way or another with athletes, you need to be here with your arms. You should be really emphasizing this action more in terms of when they're actually running or racing. I will tend to split it into constraints. And some constraints that I picked up, one that I really enjoy doing, and I got this from Adarian Barr, is backside arms. So trying to sprint or run where, imagine if you've seen the three planes of motion, you have the uh, frontal, the transverse, and the sagittal. And it's the frontal plane where you imagine there's a plexiglass mirror in front of you. You're like a mime. And imagine that plexiglass mirror is now moved so it's just in the middle of your body. So it moves into your body. And now there's the front side of your body and the back side. And so backside arms would be where you cannot, the arms cannot break that plane of the mirror. They have to stay behind you. They have to stay in that plane of the mirror behind you. And maybe they come a little bit to the front more. I mean, it's not like. It doesn't have to be that crazy of a rule, but just generally speaking, putting that image in your head, keep the arms on the backside of your body and having people run just using the energy of the arm on the backside of their body. No position, not saying get hammer your elbow back to 90 or anything like that. Just find a way to make that work and feel how it changed your stride. Feel how you're recoiling energy from the upper body into the lower body. Feel how it changed how your feet are working. Feel how it changed how your spine and your shoulder blades are working. Because it does. And then you could do the same thing. All right, front side. Okay, now you're going to have your arms on the front side of that plexiglass mirror. Run. See how that changed things. How has your strategy to run changed? What are your arms doing differently? And using that contrast, giving the athlete that experiential learning. And so sometimes I will do a, a mix or a contrast run. So I'll say, all right, 20 meters backside, 20 meters front side, 20 meters backside. And then maybe the last 20 meters just now do what, whatever your arms want to do. And by drawing out those constraints, you're allowing athletes to experience how their body works to their own individual specs, their own structure, their muscle ratios, and their limb lengths, and all that stuff. They are going to experience how to best utilize the energy with the arm in the back, and then they will experience how to use it in the front, and then they can put it together on their own as their body sees fit more reactively. To me, this form of coaching works better in terms of making the athlete their own best learner. Versus me as a coach saying, well, no, this is the right way and you need to do it this way. I would rather give the athlete a set of tools to feel in their body. Oh, that feels fast. I'm going to do a little bit more of that when I run. I'm going to feel a little bit more 
of where my arm was there in the swing and how that felt good when I run. I believe as we grow up in, in youth and we're doing sports skills, and especially those of us who are really into it, before someone coaches us, we find something that just feels good. We found a way to throw a baseball that just felt fast. We were practicing pitching or we were kicking a soccer ball. Well, that kick really felt good. And maybe it's just subconscious too, but we go with that feeling. And the brain is an unbelievably intelligent quantum supercomputer, and it can put movement together on such an amazing level. And especially, we I think this might be a question down the road, so I don't want to get too far into this, but I was listening to a podcast with Rafe Kelly and Rob Gray talking about motor learning and the idea that the body is not a machine. It's not a robot where we have a bunch of hinge joints put together. We have ball and socket joints with so many degrees of freedom and a capacity for rotation. There's so many different ways that the brain, and there's so much complexity in how the brain puts together all this movement that we do. I mean, it is really mind-blowing. And so anytime I can offer an athlete a natural learning solution with the arms, uh, I'm going to do it. One other thing I'll say with the front side arms, I, I do find it interesting as well to play around with how high the hand is lifted and just have the athlete notice how that's changing their stride. So how high are you lifting the hand in front of you? And also too, in lifting the hand in front of the body, we don't want, we want it to be close to the face. We want a tighter swing up front, generally speaking. And I don't think that's something that's necessarily a position. That's more a feeling or a, a paradigm to be tighter in the front. When athletes are wide out front, that tends to do wonky things to their swing leg recovery as it gets into the front. So it's also something you could, could have athletes, um, you could call it feeding the air. You could say, yeah, let your hand way out in front of you uh, when it's in the front swing and see what that does to your stride. And using that all as motor learning, it's all learning. And that's why I like this question. This was a lot of time I probably spent on talking about the arms, but you could apply this to literally anything. And I just think it's a really valuable way of going about it. I once you kind of get the concepts of coaching and contrasting and experiential learning, it's really cool because you can apply it. You could even apply it to sports and skills that you're not super familiar with and just watch how athletes put movement together. It's really cool. So thanks, Kevin, for asking that question. Okay, we have a strength performance athlete asks, how would you structure a weight training program for speed and acceleration? How would you set up and manage the volume? All right, so. With this question, there's tons of details here in my book, Speed Strength, uh, so that can help answer that question. But obviously, I want to give uh, some help for you on this show. So you cannot go wrong with solid principles of program design and then using sleds. So for acceleration, using sleds, and especially in contrasts and waves. I love using sleds, and I love using them in contrast. So for example, uh, loading up with three plates, so you have 135, do a few reps, take a plate off. Now you got 95, do a few reps. All right, now I do a few with 65 or 45. Maybe you do a couple waves of that. I really enjoy, and you could call that surfing the curve, but that's specific skill related. That's not a barbell. That's not your skill. And that could go back to that surfing the curve thing. I really enjoy surfing the curve when it comes to specific stuff like sleds. I think it's awesome. And then uh, sleds the company with the solid strength program. If you're looking for acceleration, strength isn't always the solution, but in the sense that oh, you're not doing your skill very well, we'll just get stronger. But I do, uh, I have, have had really good success recently doing the sled contrast type work with 1x20 strength program principles. And for me, the 1x20s usually ends up being more like 1x10 or 1x12 or a smaller form of Christian Thibodeau was talking about 3x8, 4x8 when he was on recently talking about just that slow and steady and consistent strength gain that you're going to get with a little bit higher reps. 
And so that is a little bit of a binary. I'm using a little bit of higher reps for the slow, consistent, steady strength gain. And you could call it slow twitch, but for that early acceleration, it is strength. And then you're going to get all that fast twitch, high output in all the sleds. So I like that type of stuff, but any strength program and solid principle design, I think is pretty solid there for you. And just, again, I, I really do enjoy the sleds and all sorts of, all sorts of waves and motions when we're talking about that structure of a program for speed and acceleration. If I went into the minutia and all right, this is what we do Monday, Wednesday, Friday, this is Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, that would be would be a very long show. So those are just two things that I uh, really do enjoy using and I think can help a lot of people in the realms of acceleration development. All right, Rico asks why some people have a long push off to a penultimate and some have more of a jump stop. So I think this would refer to the the baby penultimate. I think Jake Tura calls it in jumping. So athletes who have this like long penultimate step into, and let's just say a two-leg jump here. So long step into a two-leg jump or a short step, like a quick little jump hop into a two-leg jump. And this is another instance where structure will dictate function. And if you just coach an athlete into a position, you may not be doing what's in their optimal interest. And so what I mean by this is I, what it seems is that athletes who are wide ISA types generally are going to be those who do better with the shorter penultimate for the simple reason that a long penultimate, this long fall penultimate is something that there's just more elastic force there. It's going to require you in the context of a two leg running jump, that long fall, that long penultimate will generally require that leg hit, uh, especially the last, the very last step to be pretty straight and rigid and uh, have an element of rotations, a stronger element of rotation. Those are things that wide ISA folk are not quite as good at. Uh, Not to say they couldn't do it, but they tend to not be quite as good at rotating and not quite as good at landing with long straight leg positioning. So for them, you could tell them to do a long penultimate, but they wouldn't be really to their strengths with it. And they probably would end up in a little bit more of that squatted, not quite as rotated position when they actually did take off. And so again, this is where the constraints might be helpful saying, you could just, for the sake of motor learning, have athletes do jumps and do three different types of penultimate lengths. You could say, all right, do a, do a baby penultimate, now go a little bit longer in your penultimate, now go a little bit longer. And to help that too, without them thinking about it, you could just put like a little, um, like a little piece of rubber on the floor, like a gym floor, a piece of track, and you could use that, have them step off of that into their takeoff for the penultimate and put a cone where they need to actually step and jump and just mess around with that. Just do some different lengths. How did that feel? How did that feel? Instead of just saying, just do this long penultimate. But I honestly wouldn't even necessarily use that much in the sense of the body and the brain usually do a pretty darn good job of putting together good motor programs, given that the athlete has a good athletic history. If I've played a lot of sports and a lot of jumping sports and have a good like GPP base, I've, I've played, I've done the rolls and the crawls and the roughhousing, and I, I was a kid who played, chances are my, my body and brain will have all the tools to put together a very good jump for me and the brain and body does a really good job of connecting that. But for athletes who might have not had that jumping sport history, you just feel like there's something off. Yeah, playing around with those different, saying try three different lengths here of the jump and see how that, see which one felt best. Those kind of things can be helpful, but I won't, I wouldn't hold athletes to one specific like length of that type of jump. And I do think so much of it lies in that. Are you a speed or a power athlete? Are you a wide? Are you a narrow infrastructural angle? Pressure and pressure management has just such a massive, massive impact on how we actually do our sports skills. 
Blood work is a common analysis in the regime of elite athletes. It quantifies many dimensions and metrics of an athlete's physiology and helps one to see windows of potential performance improvement. Today's episode is also sponsored by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. The company uses a blood test and patented algorithm to analyze your body's physiological markers, providing you with a clear picture of what's going on inside of you. Inside Tracker then offers science-backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. In using Inside Tracker myself, it was truly fascinating to see the many metrics of my own physiology, looking at things like hormone levels, inflammation, blood oxygen-related metrics, and much more. If you are interested in an Inside Tracker analysis, for a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. And to get that discount, head to insidetracker.com slash justflysports. Next question. Pratush says, one, how to go about speed training with minimal equipment. As a young strength and conditioning coach, equipment you would deem necessary or worthwhile for investing for team sports. And so, yeah, I think minimal is awesome. I think so much of the stuff that we use is is definitely not quite as needed as we tend to think it is. And so honestly, if I just had like a hill or a, a nature trail, a forest, people, that's, that's just about all I need in many cases. Just in the sense that there's so much that you can do if I just have a hill or just to change a terrain. I mean, heck, even a flat surface and just people to competitively sprint is pretty awesome. And you can do a lot of things with strength training too, using, using partners or even single leg squatting and lunges and things like that but i will say if i if i had to pick like it's like okay i have first off i just have nothing i have me and the athletes and some in nature and maybe i can go to a hill or something like that i mean you can do an awful lot there but okay what's that first piece of equipment that i would want to get and we're talking about speed training probably a sled some sort of loaded sled would be the first thing and i only say that probably because you also could look at just getting like sticks uh, or small wickets or mini hurdles to lay on the ground. And you can make those out of PVC pipe for almost nothing or just get sticks on the ground. It's nice because you don't need like plastic mini hurdles that you buy that are more expensive, especially because a lot of those are honestly too high. I would go in a heartbeat. I would just put sticks on the ground to do sprints over than six to eight inch hurdles that cause too much lifting. And in my mind, too much breaking force and kind of fighting the cycle of your legs as they go around. So I would say some sort of small, low mini hurdles, and then sleds definitely don't have to be expensive either. But if you have a hill, you might be just fine without a sled. So um, yeah, I would would generally say those would be the first two things that I'm looking at when it comes to the basic, the bare bones for that kind of thing. If we're talking about any sort of subsequent or, you know, strength type stuff that you would do alongside that, uh, hex deadlift bar is great, but I'd be happy to do single leg a lot of single leg lifts and single leg lift type variations or partner squat type things you can do so much with so little and oftentimes i remember this was the case in the spring of 2020 when all these gyms are totally closing and people have no equipment is they're just going out and sprinting and you have to be way more resourceful with what you have without all the i guess you could say all the bells and whistles but even your standard equipment and it just the art of being resourceful, and I do, I definitely agree with this too. When I was at uh, Return to the Source, so Rafe Kelly's retreat, I was there in July, and it was seven days where I think I looked at my phone basically just once a day to call home, call my wife. And other than that, I was not around technology. And the longer I was in that, basically that state, it was just, it was just me and the other people there teaching me and, and training with me and nature. 
I felt like my intuition was just improving and improving and improving and my ability to be resourceful with just what I had. And I think it's really important to do that before we reach to just to just other tools that don't demand necessarily a whole lot of intuition. I think it's really good to become very good with the tools we have before we just reach out to other things. So intuition and just knowing how to use what you have, really, really big. All right, Pratusha's second question. What is your idea for in-season programming for team sports, what to train, and how much? I'll just leave this as a kind of a basic general answer, is I use a lot of ISO holds in-season, bodyweight isometric holds. I just think that is a staple. It's a standard. It's a great way to keep athletes healthy and resilient, and it can be a little bit boring, I guess you could say, in some senses of the word, but it's also, it's just simple. And if in-season athletes, the, the complexity demands of their sport, the, tactic, the tactical, the technical, everything they're doing, I don't want to be complex in the weight room at that point. Maybe I might, so outside of the ISO holds, if they're in a little bit of a lull where they're maybe not playing as many games, then maybe we'll bring in, I, I would call it mental relief work. So just other types of games or sports that are fun to warm up with that aren't their sport, just to give them a little bit of break mentally. Dr. Yes has talked about that with uh, the Russian volleyball team playing soccer in LA before they played the United States in volleyball, just as a mental relaxation. And, and I, I definitely believe in that stuff. I think that's helpful, but you do need to be careful with how much and where you're doing that. And then honestly, with the, with any sort of like lifting type stuff, it's pretty much easy style, uh, easy strength style programming, uh, maybe one by 10 or one by eight, stuff like that. To me, that the strength is not complicated and I don't use that much of it. The barbell work in season, I definitely tend to prefer body weight. So that's basically what I do in season. I could go into a lot of minutia there, but I will I will look at that. And also it makes me think about what Milan Jovanovic talked about with the idea of when he was on the show, I believe he talked about this, the idea of in season, we don't want a lot of peaks. Like, And I think when we're using neurally intensive activities and we're even even weights, which it's to me, it's, it's good to maintain your strength in season. Absolutely. But I don't, we don't want to be creating peaks and valleys through excess uh, stress in the weight room and stress can be good i mean getting i think getting stronger in season if you're not stressing yourself overly where it's taking away from your sport practice to get there i think that's fine but i also think that if you're a support staff and you're not the sport coach just look just realizing that look my job is to get these players that i want to i want their sport practice to shine that is absolutely what i want and i think that can sometimes cause a slightly different perspective so i will I'm not as inclined to be utilizing a heavier doses of weights in season. I just want to th- keep things consistent. And if athletes are getting stronger with the consistency, then that's awesome. But I tend to use just a lot of body weight type work to keep people uh, healthy and functioning well. Okay, next question. David S. says, how to deal with a toe sprain? Well, to be honest, I really don't know. I've, I'm a strength coach and you know speed coach, sport coach. And so I'm... And plus, I'd honestly, on top of that, I don't really have a whole lot of history with toe sprains. I will say, I do think all injuries are blessings in the sense of they can help you to see a different part of your movement. And all injuries, as I talked about with like the learning and the noticing uh, side of things, I think they help us to notice the way we move in a new light. And so if I sprain my toe, and I did actually, I think I fractured my toe one time doing like a diving training exercise where I was doing a pike handstand with the bands but hit my toe in the ground really hard that definitely changed my movement for a while but 
it just if a toe is sprained, it makes me think that it could be a good opportunity to do a lot of single leg stance work and just really get in touch with your midfoot and really feel how your midfoot is working. And sometimes we go to the toes too fast. We rush into the toes in various movements. And so it might be a good chance just to do a lot of like a single leg standing isometric hip flexion exercise or just barefoot single leg standing and moving your legs around in different manners and, and just noticing how the tripod of the foot is working. Notice how you're feeling the balls of the feet and the heel and the arch of the foot. And you can really just dig into what's happening there, improving some intrinsic foot strength and, and just feeling how your body moves in different ways. I'm sorry, it's probably not a great answer, but as I see it, all injuries are a good chance just to learn about your body as you're going through that rehab process. All right, here is another question, I think still by David, is what frequency and timing during a training session or as a separate activity is best for isometrics uh, like iso extreme lunge and i did just talk about body weight training in season and so i really love using extreme iso lunge extreme isometric type work there and so really it's something you can use quite often it just depends on how hard you're going to go for it and as a rule of thumb you could either use the isometric work the body weight isometric holds either a in the same session, so let's say I'm doing some strength and power, I could either use them before the session as a warm-up, I could use them after the session as a cool-down. They just contrast. They contrast with the heavy, high neuro work. You could also think high-low, so maybe Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm doing some fast sprints and some lifts. You Technically, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, you could do longer extreme isometric holds to help you recover. So those, those holds will help you recover from the fast work. So it's just a contrast. It's a recovery. That's how I like to utilize it. Okay. Jay Walk asked a question basically about inside edge, outside edge, utilizing pronation. And so for this question, I'll just say that uh, when it comes to what part of the foot should I hit on, what part of the foot should I get to, you need, and I'll, I'll say this as I say it with coaching position, I tend to not coach positions. So I don't want to coach and say, you must be here because with anything, you need a flow of movement. And with the foot, you need both pronation and supination. And the activity that you're doing may be biasing one more than the other though. So for example, upright running, and as David Gray said this when he was on, it's a more supination biased experience than let's just say a, a deep squat, okay? Especially like a, the way a, a child squats. Upright running is going to be way more, you're in supination way more of that than you are pronation. I think Gary Ward in his book, What the Foot, said that pronation is only two-sevenths of the gait cycle. And in sprinting, I mean, it might be where the foot's actually pronating, it's probably even quite a bit less because that foot is not going to fully pronate when you're sprinting. It needs to stay in a little bit more of a bridged bias to deal with those fast forces. So you need both though. You also do need to pronate. If you look at a lot of sports skills, like look at a change of direction. If you look at what's happening in a full squat, if you look at what's happening in different types of jumping, you will see the foot reaching a pronation, especially if you watch like watch high jump, watch how massively the foot pronates and works as a pronating class one lever there in the final step of a high jump. So you do need to pronate, especially when you need more time. And a Darien Bar classic quote that is really important and useful is pronation gives you time. So we can think of upright running, sprinting. You're spending one-tenth of a second on the ground, not long. You don't want to pronate too much because that fits with the, the fast nature of ground contact. However, 
when I'm doing something like, let's just say, the second to last step into a jump takeoff and that foot is on the ground a little longer. Maybe it's on the ground close to two tenths of a second. Well, I need to pronate a little bit to run through that distance. So pronation buys you time and you need both. The key to me is that you don't get stuck in pronation. So we don't want to be stuck in over pronation. And I think that's where a lot of people's contentions would be is, is seeing people who are over pronated and stuck in it and get injured because of it. And then we want to help them get out of that. So we just don't want to be stuck. And, and the flip side, we also, we need to pronate. You don't want to be stuck in supination either, where you can never flatten the three arches of your feet. If you can't flatten, or the three, yeah, the three arches, if you cannot flatten the three arches of your feet, then the mobility has to come out somewhere else, somewhere upstream. And then that could be a problem. That can be cause for injury. So we definitely want to be able to have that mobility in the foot itself. And if we, we don't have it, we don't have the ability to flatten the arches, the ability to pronate, then that can set, up, can set us up for injury. And also I find that it can set us up for uh, a more like a closed skill set. Like I've, I've worked with athletes who were pigeon-toed in the past. And what I notice is that these athletes could run very fast. And I'm talking like not a little pigeon-toed, like very pigeon-toed. So think if you're pigeon-toed, you're definitely more supinated then you are pronated, and especially when it comes to how the foot is twisting. And I found that athletes could run fast in that situation linearly because it fits with a short ground contact time, but they didn't have quite as much skill and ability and a diverse skill set in the sense of like, say like a high jump. An athlete who's pigeon-toed doesn't have a lot of time to work with the ground contacts leading up to that final takeoff step. They don't have as much nuance that they can really set up there, and it tends to just not work out quite so well. And there's there's so many spectrums of this, but what I tend to how I tend to see the equation is I just like the ability of the foot in uh, about a ninety degree position. So let's just say standing on one leg. Can you stand on that one leg for a long period of time? Do you have? Can you keep the three points of contact, uh, the ball, the little toe, the ball, the big, the heel, with the ground? Or you could look at athlete. Are they always? You know, is there the ball, the big toe always coming up in a single leg standing situation? Or is the ball, the little toe always coming up when they're doing different movements? It's just important to notice those things and to make sure that they have good strength and ability and sensory ability in a basic standing position where they can really get all three points of contact and do it with a level of endurance. And you'll also find that those athletes who can do that tend to, they have pretty good arch formation. Their, their feet arches tend to work pretty well. All right, uh, next question is uh, Jay Leboy, and he asks, how much does skill training affect vertical jump gains? And if you were uh, doing your skills training for an hour, five days a week, would that negatively impact your vertical jump training? Uh, the answer honestly just depends on how intensely you're doing those skills. I would actually say that light basketball skill training is a great, great training or complementary training stimulus to doing a lot of power work. And I say that for a few reasons. One, it's, it's just fun. Uh, it can be fun. Hopefully it's fun. But two is the, the rhythm. Bouncing a basketball tunes the body. It's a rhythm. It's a beat. And a lot of times that beat, that bounce is going to be tuned with other parts of your body. And so I find that, and I did this myself uh, when I was younger, like 16, 17, and be doing the science of jumping depth jump program on Monday, and then just do a ton of basketball skills on my own, lower intensity, fun. A lot of the other days in the week, I played pickup basketball and dunked on Thursday, did some sprints on Friday or Saturday. And that that worked out really well, and I really think the basketball low-intensity skills help to recover, but I think that the higher-intensity stuff, it can be tough. 
All right, Cormac is the next question, and he says, have you ever experienced fascial contraction? Did it travel from the core to the feet or the neck to the hand? And I think that this is one of those things where I think there's different amounts of sensitivity to feel this. Um, like Dr. Edith Hoyce was on, and she, she's a chiropractor, a, a healer, someone who works with their hands on athletes. And so I think some people are more sensitive than others. I'll just put it that way. And it's definitely something that we can work on. Like we can, we can train that. All skills and abilities can be trained. And I think a lot of athletes have very poor feeling or just feeling of connection. I'll have athletes do cat cows and ask them what they think their hips are doing. And it's just, it can be very poor. So a basic level of awareness is key. I actually don't know that I feel uh, that fascial connection you're talking about, but I think the thing that I feel that maybe is linked to that is timing and, and release in the sense of if I'm doing bounding, I feel my foot loading, I feel my transverse arch loading, and I feel that moment where the ground is giving back and then I feel how to go with that, if that makes sense. To me, that's more the feeling that I tend to operate with. So yeah, I, that probably doesn't leave much there, but I do think that some athletes and, and individuals and coaches are more feeling than others and can maybe feel that a little bit more. For me, I just tend to feel and how I'm operating with the ground. All right, Corey asks, how would you apply the idea mentioned in your post today which uh, for me, that was about training compromised positions. I posted a long jumper who slipped on the board and whose brain basically had to jump in to save him from breaking his ankle or hurting himself. And then he just shot up into the air several feet, like almost instantly, like it was a very fast, explosive jump. And Adarian Barr talks about crashing the plane, like where we get in these compromised positions and the brain will jump in to save you with this almost like heroic effort of the body. And so when the brain jumps in to save you. It's almost a superhuman, if you will. It's beyond our typical abilities level of, of just coordination and outputs. And so with that said, Corey asks, how would you apply the idea mentioned in that post to training sprinters? I have my own ideas, but curious as to yours. So yeah, Corey, actually, I'd be interested in your ideas. Maybe you can hit me up after this show and let me know what you're thinking. But when I hear about that with sprinters, I think about how Adarian Barr has talked about athletes who stumble in a sprint in the first few steps and still run a personal best time. And so I guess that that would be the the thing is that stumble. Like if you tripped over, now how would you, I don't know how you'd really want to set this up, right? Like you're just going to have athletes run over roots and see if they trip or something. But when a, an athlete slips or stumbles, that forces a faster than normal, just this brain crashing the plane, reorganizing everything really fast. And we talk about fast leg and sprinting. Like you'll see the sprint drill where athletes do fast leg there doing you know a march type drill and then just whip their knee up real quick and it's a fast leg and they're trying to create this overspeed but the the issue with fast leg there is that that's fully conscious you're creating it you're not giving the the body or the athlete a room to react and so <laughs> i do think like you could make yourself stumble like just saying hey go do this acceleration i want you to like trip and just try to save yourself i think once you get up to top end speed that becomes increasingly more dangerous obviously Austin Yoakum uh, jumped in on that Instagram post and said that he met, uh, mentioned if athletes in a team sports situation, like you get, you're chasing an athlete and you take a hit and kind of get knocked off your feet and have to reorganize. I believe that something to that tune, I, I should go back and read exactly what it was, but something like that, your body and brain is going to jump in and save you. And you can, the speed at which everything has to get reorganized and redirected is just insane in those types of scenarios. And so it also makes me think, I wonder if you could do a thing where you are doing an acceleration or a sprint and just have someone with a pad like bump you intentionally. And I feel like the athlete would probably be bracing for it. It would almost have to be something you don't know is coming. And then, but if you know something's coming, then you're going to be kind of looking out for it. So then that's the question. How do you do that? But yeah, I think just play, starting out with just four stumbles 
can be interesting or i do like the idea of like a, a sprint float sprint float which i learned from uh, that's not new but uh, doing it like every five meters or 10 meters where there's just really quick on and off or on command on and off sprint float that's going really fast i think that can bring in a little bit of that stumble recovery response so i just think that stuff is interesting to play around with i'd be really interested into what you're thinking and doing with that but that's a great question thanks for asking it that's time for today I didn't get to everyone's questions. I'm sorry. I will put this, I will take the ones I didn't get to and put them into the next sheet. And I'll definitely try to get to them next time. But thanks again for everyone who asked a question. I really enjoy doing these and I really enjoy hearing what you guys want to know. One last thing is my online course, Elastic Essentials, will be re-releasing here in mid-January. So keep your eyes out for that. It's gotten some great reviews thus far. And it also has certified CEUs for several professional organizations. We're always trying to keep up on those continuing education units. So it's a great course and it reflects my training system, the advances and thoughts that I've had over my years as a coach. And I know people have really been enjoying it so far. So be sure to check that one out. We'll see you guys next week.